If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. My podcasts often deal with distressing situations which are not suitable for children and some adults for that matter. Some of what I discuss may trigger uncomfortable emotions. If that does occur, please reach out to Lifeline, Beyond Blue or any other support service or person you feel comfortable with. I'm Narelle Fraser. I was a cop with Victoria Police for 27 years, 15 of those as a detective, having dealt with all types of crime from a stolen bicycle to a stolen life. I witnessed the effect crime has on all those involved and became one of those victims myself in 2012 when I was diagnosed with PTSD. However, out of adversity comes other opportunities like this my own podcast. I still pinch myself, but thanks for listening and coming with me as we explore the human side and impact of crime. You want to make sure that the people you're selecting are at the right level, because if they're not, you're going to put them in danger, you're going to put their colleagues in danger, and you're going to put the people that they're there protecting in danger. Quote, Craig was one of the most outstanding SOG members Victoria Police had. He was also in the top 3% of astute detectives, unquote. Clearly Craig and I have so much in common. (laughs) Not. Uh, This is part of a testimonial I found on the internet about today's guest, and it's not a bad introduction to Craig Walsh. Craig Walsh, who you may be surprised to learn we called Walshy, uh, did the rounds from a policing perspective, which is now well and truly behind him. But he had the runs on the board, believe me. He was a member at Homicide, the Robbers, as we called them, (laughs) the Armed Robbery Squad, the SOG. They're the guys who wear the black pyjamas, the PJs, and carry an AK-47 or similar as their equipment of choice. He's been involved in shootings, sieges, and dealt with Victoria's most dangerous criminals, but also those have just cracked under life's pressures and acting so irrationally that they're a danger to not only themselves but the public. And those trying to defuse the situation was Walshy and his colleagues, of course. Walshy was the SOG tactical commander at many of the sieges our negotiator friend John O'Neill worked at. Walshy was the one liaising with the braid making those life and death decisions that may affect anyone and or everyone at the scene. But like many of us, being in those dangerous situations constantly can come at a cost. And it wasn't until Walshy was at a conference listening to a psychologist talking about mental health that Walshy began to think, hmm, she's talking about me. So let's say hello to Craig Walsh, shall we? 
Okay, thanks for your time, Craig. Uh, hello, it's been a long time. <laughs> yes, it has, yes. <laughs> I think looking from what I remember, we used to work together, was it at Carlton where we met one another? It was at Carlton Police Station, the old police station down there now in uh, Drummond Street, I think it was. It was, but uh, I don't know if it's there anymore. But um, anyway, I think they now... Still there. Is it? Oh, okay. Right. Yeah, still there. It's not, it's not a police station anymore. Um, I think it's a private residence now. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so uh, anyway, a- again, thanks, uh, Craig, for joining us today. And, you know, we were talking about your equipment um, of choice being an AK-47, you know, I remember mine out at the uh, academy as a policewoman back in 1987. I had uh, my choice of equipment was a hideous, shiny black handbag. Do you remember them? I do remember them. Um, uh, my choice of weapon wasn't an AK, by the way. It was it was something a lot more, um, a lot less uh, sort of uh, European. It was a, well, it was a Steyr and it was a um, an M4. But yes, I remember the. Um, I remember the handbags, um, and I think they were around about the same vintage as the um, the small rubber baton. Oh, God, yes. But I don't imagine you would have probably been... probably as helpful as well. <laughs> I don't imagine you would have been issued with a shiny black handbag, though, Craig. No, never fortunate enough uh, for that one, Narelle. <laughs> it just wouldn't have suited you, I wouldn't have thought. Hey, um, uh, you just said then um, your choice wasn't an AK-47, and you said an M4. Now... For those of us out there who aren't very well uh, versed with firearms, can you give us just a, a bit of a rundown of your arsenal that you had at the SOG, but also what a an a, uh, M4 is? Oh, so so we essentially at the SOG they use assault rifles. I'm not sure what they use now, um, but uh, so back then it was a Steyr and it was a. And it was a uh, an M4, I think, and um, I tended to carry a shotgun, which was um, uh, a Super 90 entry gun. Was I think from, from memory? It's a long time ago now. But um, so you know, the shotgun was my weapon of choice. Um, pretty devastating close quarter battle weapon. Um, probably not as accurate as well, certainly not as accurate as the other two. Um, but th- that was sort of my choice of weapon, if you like. So I carried the most, along with a. I think back in those days, I'm not sure what the guys carry now. We had uh, Heckler and Koch USP 45 caliber handguns, so semi-automatic handguns. So it's a, a lot of gun there. Is that the one? Uh, is a 45 the one, the Dirty Harry one? <laughs> no, no, I think yeah, 40. 44 Magnum, but um, no different sort of gun. That was a revolver. This one was a. Uh, a semi-automatic, and and uh, could I just preface all this by saying I, I'm not really into guns, um, albeit I grew up in the country. Mm. Um, for me, they were more of a tool than, you know, like a hammer would be to a tradesman. Um, yep. Whereas some people are really, you know, re- really into their guns. It's their hobby, it's their passion, all that sort of thing. That was never, never really me. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. I suppose. Um... Well, without that, Walshie, you couldn't have done your job. I mean, you needed that to not only save your own life, but uh, sometimes the the life of other people. Yeah, uh, you know, there's no doubt. Um, and the reason, you know, the, the the objective of the special operations group, the reason they exist, is to sort of do complete missions that are sort of out of the capability of the normal police officer. Um, you know, whether that be uniform or the critical incident teams or whatever, um, the SOG is to do the sort of higher, riskier sort of jobs. So um, clearly they need to be armed with the right weapons for for a whole range of reasons. So. And so what sort of training do you do to become an SOG member? Well, <laughs> Some people might see the uh, the SAS show, uh, SAS Australia on, and, you know, the principles are the same. You essentially spend a lot of money and a lot of time selecting the right people, making sure they've got the right attributes, they've got the right capabilities. You're assessing them as individuals, but also how they operate as part of a team. They've got to work in a small team. They've got to be comfortable in high-risk environments. Um 
you know, that, that's critical, the selection of the person, and then you've got to train them. Um, and the training takes a long time. You're, you're always still learning. Um, and, you know, there's ongoing training in the special operations group, uh, always will be, and that's the same as, as across across the world. Um, people that are really good at their jobs spend a lot of time practising and um, not only practising but a lot of times understanding what what went wrong, what mistakes they've made, and and they reflect on those to make sure that they don't happen again. Um, and when you've got the human element in there, you always have a, a potential for things to go wrong, but they try and minimise that as much as they can. So training is really important. The place and wherever you go, um, but certainly the special operations group um, don't to get don't get to be as good as they are uh, and as they need to be without um, really solid training. You, you said at the start then that uh, they're chosen, you know, the people they're looked at for their attributes, a whole lot of things, but what sort of attributes uh, are looked for in a person to join the SOG? Well, they've got to, firstly, they've got to be able to do the, the – um, people get hung up on the on the physical attributes. So they they essentially, by the time you sort of finish that selection course, you're in elite athlete sort of territory. Um, and people get hung up on the physical attributes, I guess because it is very hard to sort of be successful. Um, you know, we used to have 70 or 80 applicants and end up with five or six um, you know, we did a lot of work around trying to make that a better, a better result. But, but um, you know, it, it was very difficult because of the, the the way that you had to put through people through their paces, um, and you had to make sure that they were courageous. You had to make sure that they had a lot of self belief, um, which is which is critical as part of a small elite team, as well as the ability to work unsupervised um, in in sort of hostile environments. And, we're, and again, it kind of sounds a little bit like the army. It, it's not, but it's very paramilitary. And um, again, you know, to do those jobs that are out of the ordinary, that, are, that, that require a high level of skill, expertise, um, you know, you, you've got to um, you've got to select the right people, and um, self belief is a, is a big one. And you know, th- there's two sides of that coin. You get people who are really motivated, you know, keen, athletic, very strong minded. But when you've got to try and manage and lead those people in an administrative sense, that can be um, problematic. And I'm not just talking about the SOG here. I'm talking about special ops. Teams across the world, you know, that they can. Most of them have issues with, um, you know, I will say issues. The challenge is to make sure that you're leading those people in a correct way, so you don't have issues um, with 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 people who have a really strong self belief. And essentially, in Victoria, anyway, um, I don't think we've had a female. Um, we certainly had females on selection courses, but I don't think there's been a female at the group yet. I think it's a matter of time. But, um, you know, managing alpha males, you know, a, a significant number of alpha males when things aren't busy becomes a challenge in itself. So, um, you know, they spend every day with... Let alone putting a female in there. Well, <laughs> you, you know, I've seen females operate at high levels in, in Ireland. Um, South Australia had one years ago uh, that worked in their um, in their uh, tactical team. Um, you know, if they if they can work in Ireland and elsewhere, I'm sure they can work here. I mean, the the issue from back in my day, working on selection and running training courses was, you know, the 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 females would train. Uh, really hard on the on the aerobic capacity but then struggle a bit with the strength and vice versa so I'm I'm sure that there's um, there's females police officers out there that would would um, you know would, would cope very well 
but it's a matter of them being interested to want to go to, to the group and and want to put themselves through that sort of thing to to achieve that challenge. But gee, there's there's, there's plenty of elite sportswomen out there that I look at and think, well, you know, you'd, you'd have no issue um, physically doing the work. It's it's then you've got the mental side of things and and then you know you get into close quarter battle and all that sort of stuff with small arms and. There's a there's a talent to do that too. It's um, it was described to me once as an art form, not a science. And so you either get it or you don't, you know. And we have we've had AFL footballers who played hundreds of games not get through, you know, because of one reason or another. Um, and the course um, used to be, and I think it's similarly, it's designed to be challenging. It's designed to test people's mental toughness. Um, and a whole a whole range of different ways. So um, I'm sure the guys um, in the group now continue to do that. They've probably got far better equipment and far better ways of doing it. But 20 years ago, um, you know, I, I would have said that we, we were sort of at the cutting edge of of selection and and then training. And um, you know, we kind of benchmarked around the world and. You try to try to put that back into our training course and our selection course, and to you know sort of lessen any injuries and make sure that um, you know we, we did for people because because of course people train for years to try and um, you know to get into the group, um, and um, many of them didn't for various reasons, and you want to try and maximise that the capture, and and of course now. I guess there's there's more people from um, multicultural backgrounds that perhaps aren't um, drawn to to or attracted to the special operations group, so that kind of narrows your dream pool down a little bit. There's probably more um, females in the police that that aren't attracted to that sort of work, uh, or may not be. Um, so your dream pool gets a bit smaller. So I think the challenge is to make sure that you're making the most out of out of the people who are interested in going there and making sure that your selection and training um, tools are as equitable as they can be. And and I think, you know, it's it, it may well be time to do something, sort of a, a positive um, uh, strategy to try and attract more females in there or more female applicants and assist them. And I know we have various training courses or training um, approaches over the years to try and better prepare people for selection and and uh, and the course but um, we didn't seem to have that much success um, I'm not sure why that is and, and and in fact whether it's better now um, I'm not that close to it anymore with uh, your experience what would be the main um, reason why police women, uh, you know, and as you, we keep saying, this is 20 years ago, but what was the main reason that women um, couldn't attain the level of everything that's required to be in the SOG? Was there something very specific that women couldn't do for, you know, it might be just a physiolo- physiological reason. Was there something they couldn't do as well as the men that was very important? Oh, look, I, I mean, Clearly, I mean, I'm the father of four daughters, so you know, I've kind of, uh, I'm on the girl's side, if you like, um, to a certain extent. I mean, you've got to... that, makes, that makes you feel good, Bolshe. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I, I, I want my kids to grow up and have an equal opportunity to, to achieve whatever they want to achieve in life. And but there are some things that you just can't get around, and that is, you know, generally, males are stronger than females. Um, you know, and, and I'm, I'm generalising, but, you know, and, and you, you tended to get more males interested in that type of work than, than you did females. But I think more, um, you know, uh, trying to stack up physically against the males and at the same time, and it's not just physical, it's, it's the mental toughness and the desire and the motivation to actually... Um, overcome that challenge. I think that was okay. Um, that that was essentially it. Um, you know, and, and we didn't. And, and again, you know, you didn't. It wasn't like you had twenty or thirty females trying to interested in 
in getting into the group. Back then it was you had maybe one or two a year, um, which wasn't a lot. And, and arguably we, we could have and should have done more to attract more more women to the group. Um, and that's the challenge for the, for the hierarchy over there now, um, you know. So um, it, it'll be an interesting challenge. Uh, yes, but I, I think that's worldwide. That's with um, everything, isn't it? It's um, it's not just the SOG or the police. Hey, can I go back to when you said that you have to teach the people to become courageous? Um, how do you teach somebody to be courageous? Well, I, I don't think you can teach them, Narelle. I think I think some people may be more courageous than others, just naturally. Yeah. But I think if you give someone the opportunity of an experience. And you know that experiential learning that that I'm more confident in in this situation than I would have been if I'd never faced it before, and that's why your training is so important. You know, cold. You don't go into a situation cold. Rehearsals are critical in in tactical policing. Um, so you, you're not going in something cold. You've rehearsed. You know the the building, the layout, the wherever you're going to, you do everything you can to be fully conversant to what you're going to face. So I don't think you can teach someone to be more courageous. I think you can provide the tools and the experience that that assist them in that. But, um, you know, part of selection is putting people into situations where they've got to make decisions and critical decisions. And, you know, uh, I think um, my one of my sort of philosophies is emergencies are characterised by two things, a lack of time and a lack of information. And when you put people into a, a critical incident um, scenario, generally, you know, they're not going to have all the information they want to deal with it and they're not going to have all the time they want. And, you know, so they have to act. And we we used to, and I assume they still do, put them into scenarios when they're tired, when they've... You know, they haven't had a chance to think and, and they've got to make a call and they've got to take some action. And some people do and some people don't. And, you know, that all adds to the – it's not really a pass-fail, but it all adds to a picture of someone who, who you know, and there's a variety of assessments that makes the grade or, or doesn't. And, it's, and, and you want to make sure that the people you're selecting are, are at, the, at the right level because – if they're not, you're going to put them in danger, you're going to put their colleagues in danger, and you're going to put the people that they're, they're there protecting in danger, potentially. So you, you want people to be suited to the role. When you think about it, it's a huge responsibility. Um, you said uh, you've indicated before that you uh, travelled um, pretty much around the world seeing how they train other the, to the level of the SOG here. Can you tell us a bit about that? So I was lucky enough to get a Churchill Fellowship back in 2002, I think, and that paid for me to go around the world um, and look at police tactical units and paramilitary tactical units. Um, I went through LAPD, SWAT LA, County Sheriff SWAT, had a, had a look at the New York ESU, um, worked, I think I stayed in Ottawa with the Mounted Royal Mounted uh, Royal Canadian Mounted Police, uh, with their special operations team up there, had a look at their local uh, SWAT teams there, went to SO19 in London, um, GSG9 Germany, um, HMSO, HMSU in Belfast, along with the, their tactical units in Dublin and um in Strathclyde Police in Scotland. So had a really good look at the way they selected their people. Um, places like Belfast had been uh, Northern Ireland and clearly had a lot of terrorism issues over the years and they were really sort of, you know, right on song with, with the way they selected their people. They were really at the top of their game. The FBI hostage rescue team, I stayed there for their selection for two weeks I mean, they, they had access to, I mean, money to burn. Um, nothing was out of, out of the ordinary. I mean, they, they had psychologists on standby. They had medics and doctors um, there every day uh, during selection. Um, so they were really, really well equipped and resourced. 
So, you know, and the idea was you would bring back the the, the best ideas and and implement them here in Victoria and, and around Australia. So which which we tried to do. Um, you know, and some things went in, some things didn't. And, you know, we used, um, fun, funnily enough, so we, we started doing uh, camps for elite sporting teams. Um, you know, I, I can't, we put quite a few AFL teams through them and, um, and, and we sort of worked with Melbourne Storm for the last 18 or 19 years and run a lot of uh, camps with them pre-season using the ideas that came out of that world tour, if you like. So I feel very fortunate that, uh, that, that I managed to, to sort of to get that Churchill Fellowship, but it's um, it really opened my eyes in terms of what was possible and what you know uh, what the uh, constrictions were here, or you know how we get around things and how we should approach um, selection. So it was good, and and you know the crossover after eight years of looking at elite players doing the same thing as the tactical operators. And there's a very, very – you're looking for similar attributes, you know, self-belief, confidence, ability to work in a team, but also perform as an individual. All those things, you know, over time have become – that's been really obvious that, that – the attributes you're looking for in both groups are very similar. Mm. I'm just thinking, do you follow the AFL? I do. Okay, because I'm just thinking um, Adelaide did it talking about camps. (laughs) Yes, different camps, thankfully. (laughs) Yeah, and I was just going to say just for the listeners, and you might be able to help me here, um, but Adelaide did a camp um, at the end of, I think it was last year or the year before, but it doesn't matter when. But apparently that was such a disaster because it was so intense and it broke a lot of people to the point where uh, people went off mentally unwell, they couldn't come back to AFL. Am I sort of on the right track there? Well, you know, I, I really can't comment because I, I, I don't know. I only know what I've read. Oh, likewise, um, and, yeah. And- from what from what I've read, our our camps um, are very different. Okay. Um, you know, our, ours is around mental toughness, very simple. Um, you know, working as a team and setting benchmarks and attention to detail, all those things that that um, assist in a you know you know an elite team to kind of bring cohesion. We we don't go into the psychological sort of issues that they may have had years before. We, we don't delve into that sort of stuff, which is, a, which is a, and as I say, all I know is what I've read, which is where I think the Adelaide um, camp was very different to ours. They kind of went into things that had happened earlier um, from a psychological Okay, right. I have no idea what the issues were, but I just know when you said that you um, helped out in training camps, I I was hoping you'd say no, that you didn't help out in Adelaide because it was a disaster. (laughs) Yeah, but, but, you know, people look at that, um, look at the camps um, and, you know, selection was the same. Um, It it wasn't looked upon fondly by the hierarchy because you ended up getting people who were – would come out of it, you know, a, a senior constable from Belgrave, for example, who had been training for 12 months, was an active member on the station, come and do the SOG camp, get injured in the first two or three days and, and be off work for three months recovering. You know, so so um, the, the, the local hierarchy, wherever you went, they weren't falling over themselves for their people to, to get on the SOG selection. So that was a challenge for, for the guys um, to run the course, and I'm sure they do it much better than what we did back then. Now, but the challenge was to make sure that you didn't injure your people while while still being able to test out the attributes and look for the attributes and identify the attributes that you were after. Mm. So. Um- You've obviously worked in um, a number of different stations and squads. Is there a particular station or squad that you enjoyed um, more than the others and, and why? Um, no, well, I was lucky. I, I worked my, my, my um, training station was Footscray. Uh, the next station was Russell Street. I was stationed there um, when the Russell Street bombing happened. Oh, um, right. I then went to Carlton 
worked on an Operation Europa, which was a plainclothes task force in the licensing, gaming and vice squad of the day. Um, we've worked on the first um, gaming house in, in Carlton, run by run by uh, reasonably well-known people down there. Um, <laughs> you know, then went to the plain clothes at Russell Street for a couple of years, St Kilda CI, which I loved. Um, worked with some great people down there. Um, you know, we were lucky to have some great sergeants. We had some pretty pretty high quality senior constables. One of one of whom is now the chief commissioner in Victoria, Shane Pat. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, you know, we had some really high quality people down there. I then went to the the armed robbery squad for four and a half years. Then to homicide. I mean, I loved armed robbery. It was, I thought at the time, was the pinnacle of, you know, you were catching the guys who were doing the, the, the pretty uh, risky crime, you know, high crime, high impact crime. Um, and back then, you know, we don't have um, robberies on banks these days or armoured cars, really, not in Victoria. Um, back then, there were, there were plenty sort of at the, the 1990 and 91 and onwards. Um, we had, you know, we had the, the, um, the airport uh, robbery out there where Norman Lee was shot dead and, um, and others uh, arrested. There were a number of armed robberies back then. Uh, they were quite big, well-planned, well-executed. Um, so the armed robbery squad was great. I went to Homicide, which is a completely different um, kettle of fish. And, and to be frank with you, I had a, a little baby at the time and, you know, we did, we did two or three baby murders, which at the time I didn't realise, but that impacted me, you know, significantly. And... Um, and after a couple of years there, it was time to get promoted anyway. But I, I, I what did Clint Eastwood once say? A man's got to know his limitations. Um, I think that was my, that was one of mine. You know, I, I didn't want to, um, I, I didn't, I couldn't handle dealing with the grief of, of, um, of, of the families. I mean, I, you know, I just. Um, the, the work itself was it was sort of top quality work, and the homicide squad were known were known for you know producing really really good quality high quality briefs. But dealing with grief for me is a bit of an Achilles heel. I, I remember you know years later um, being at uh, went to a shooting an SOG shooting as as the inspector in charge of the media unit um, out in Braybrook. And um, it was a fatal shooting, and the father was one of the um, was was a reasonably well-known family from out there in criminal circles. And and later that night, I attended at the watch house where there was a bail hearing um, about to be heard with the father who was who was in custody. But when I went there, um, it turned out that he he didn't know that his son had been shot and killed earlier that morning. So, you know, just and, and just talking about this dealing with grief, um, you know, and I said to the guys, well, gee, you know, we, we, better, we better let him know. And, and um, you know, he was a big man, big, big sort of uh, imposing man. And um, the guys, uh, the detectives there, we brought him out of the cells and I said, look, sir, I introduced myself and I'm, I said, I'm sorry to inform you, your, your son was... Uh, and I, I can't think of his first name now, was shot and killed this morning um, at your home premises. And um, he, he just, it was that shock of hearing that. Um, if you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Yeah, he did, just didn't compute. And he came back and said, what, what? And I said, look, I'm sorry to tell you, your, your son was shot and killed by the police this morning at your property. And, and the grief, just the impact of that really almost knocked him off his feet. You know, and, and as an individual, I was... You know, I was, I was no great friend of, of the criminal fraternity, but as a, as a human, um, you know, that was, that was as raw as it got, you know. And um, we took him into a, a, a remand hearing where, where one, half the room was full of media and, uh, and, and the remand um, and the justice of the peace was there, the bail justice, sorry. Um, and this, this gentleman was sort of wailing and sort of rocking backwards and forwards and really, as you would appreciate, not taking anything in and had to go through this bail hearing and, and the justice at the time obviously didn't know what had just occurred and we hadn't had a chance to brief him. So he w- wasn't very um, compassionate at all and said, you know, tell this man to be quiet, otherwise I'll have him removed. So it was it was kind of um, it's one of the things that stick in my mind, you know, uh, Regardless of which side of the fence you're on, that uh, that 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 grief and that um, that uh, you know compassion, I think, um, really for me anyway, came to the fore. Mm. You know, I was speaking. It was difficult. Uh, oh, oh, it, and it doesn't get any more difficult. Like that is um, a death message, really, and a death any death message is, I think, one of the hardest things to do. But particularly when it involves, oh, yeah, and but particularly when it involves a child. And you just talking then about um, with homicide and you know the little babies that die. Um, I don't know. I think that is a struggle for anyone, let alone a policeman, but police and women that um, go to these jobs, they're the ones that we have so much trouble dealing with. And I don't know what, you know, you can do about that other than just learn a, um, a bit more about, you know, how to handle grief and how to be honest, of, you know, when you debrief and all that sort of stuff. But those things, you, they never, ever ever leave you. In fact, I'll just share something with you now. Um, uh, because um, of a whole lot of reasons, I've had to come up to my sister's house up in Echuca today to do this. And I go into the room to set up and she's got a little baby doll in the the room. And that brings back so many um, distressing uh, 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 moments for me that I had to ask her to take the doll out. I like I can't bear to see little babies, you know, alive ones. Like it just takes me back. So I understand completely uh, what you mean about that. It's um I think it's the the toughest uh, job in the police force. But can we go back? You just said something then. I think the listeners would be really interested. You said something then about the robbers. And you were saying that uh, that job out at the airport, how that was so well planned. Um, it's probably a question not on notice, um, uh, on notice. But can you uh, give us a brief rundown on that job? Because I will. I thought that was one of the most. <laughs> it's wrong to say, but brilliant, um, uh, organised uh, jobs. Uh, even though, and it's terrible. So I feel terrible saying that because somebody was killed, but. That was something like we'd never seen, was it? 
Yeah, look, that was sort of on the heels of the sort of stuff like the, you know, the, the stuff you hear of the great boogie robbery and, um, you know, which allegedly, and I don't know this uh, for fact, but, you know, the allegation was that Norman Lee was part of the great boogie robbery, but that, that robbery out there was really well planned. Um, you know, the guys were motivated, highly motivated, um, had, had experience doing similar sort of stuff, uh, taking over vans and and uh, robbing them at gunpoint. Um, they had a dry run the week before, and I think something happened to their van or whatever, and, and uh, they had to come back a week later. And there was some criticism about why the, the armed robbery was, was let to go ahead to where it was, and the armed robbery squad was sort of responsible for planning, but then the special operations group did the arrest. Um, I was at the armed robbery squad for that role, for that uh, for that job. Um, but the guys, you know, they they'd stolen cars, they they um, run rehearsals, and when I say the guys, the the, the armed robbers, um, <laughs> they they um, rehearsed it. They they'd uh, obviously done everything they could. They had an inside man. Um, on one of the vans, um, and I remember taking a statement from him after the robbery, and he was all over the place. And I thought, wow, this guy's really—I put it down at the time to, to that he that he was, you know, obviously the subject for an armed robbery, so going to be fairly distressed. But as it turned out later, he, he was the inside man who had given him the information around, um, because of course they at that time. Um, they weren't able to carry guns when they went airside. So the armed robbers knew this and knew there'd be very little resistance once, once if they took the, the guards in the right place. So uh, they did, and when they got back, and I think they were, it was a million and a half or two and a half million or something, yeah, a lot of a money, lot. Yeah, um, even yeah. now. Back yeah. then, mm. it was plenty. Um, you know, what's that? That's probably 91, 92. It's a long time ago, Walshie. So 28-odd <laughs> years ago. We were only, we were only kids then. <laughs> yes. Um, and, and you know, they, they'd planned down to the T. They didn't plan for, obviously, the, the phones were off. Um, they were they were caught out talking about things and we had surveillance on them and they were seen going out to the, the scene and, and we knew that they they committed other armed robberies. Um, and the guys that ran that job were, did a fantastic job. The crew that ran it, and um, and you know, unfortunately for the the, the, the crooks, um, as they were getting into their getaway car, um, the special operations group turned up, and there was a gunfight, and um, and yeah, Normie Lee lost his life, and uh, one of the other bandits um, ended up losing an arm out of it. Was shot in the arm. And the other bandit went on to be a, a well-known criminal. Oh, he went to jail and took off in the in his uh, in the Ford stolen Ford panel van, which was um, rammed head-on by the one of the special operation group cars or trucks. And um, he went on to uh, I think commit multiple murders and all sorts of things. So um, you know it was a big job back then, a big big job, um, and and. You know, I'm not sure whether a job would be run like that ever again for, you know, for, for where we are now. But certainly back then as a scene detective at the armed robbery squad, it was, a, it was something to behold. You know, it was an amazing experience. Yeah, yeah. Um, you were also involved in Operation Lorimer. Can you tell the listeners about that? I um, So Gary Silk... I declare this up front, Norella. Gary Silk was a good friend of mine. Um, we were detectives at St Kilda together, and then later on, sergeants at St Kilda together. We sat next to each other as detectives and um, socialised quite a bit. So, um, and I actually was involved in the first iteration of of the operation that led to Gary and Rob Miller's death, which was uh, Operation Pig Out. It was called, and again, it was. Targeting, um, targeting you know, restaurants and pizza shops and things like that out in the eastern suburbs, and things went quiet for a while, and then um, and then uh, they started up again. The cooks started up again, and and started doing sort of hitting similar targets a couple of years later, 
and uh, and that's where Rod and Gary, I think it was Operation Armada, uh, were involved in that one. So um, and that's led to their, their deaths at the hands of um, Van Dilly Debs and, and Jason Roberts. So um, when that happened, I I'd been promoted down to St Kilda, but uh, ended up back at, ended up at the Special Operations Group, and was seconded into Operation Lorimer for the first sort of six months to manage all the sort of high-risk arrests and um, and inquiries, all that sort of stuff. So I spent a fair bit of time with the task force before going back to the SOG. Um, and we ended up, um, subsequent to that, ended up uh, arresting both um, Debs and Roberts um, in the arrest phase of the operation. So, um, yes, it was... Um, when we arrested Debs, it was a nice. It was nice to see him um, arrested, I if I can it, put it that way. I bet um, it was at six thirty yeah. in the morning in a in a um, warehouse in um, Houston suburbs yeah. somewhere. How did you manage? That would have been uh, difficult um, investigating a matter where somebody had. Um, well, we can say killed, not allegedly, because he's been um, convicted yeah. and he's inside, that killed uh, one of your, you know, your best mates. How did you manage that? You know, uh, you have a couple of things in life that you regret, or <laughs> some of us more than others. <laughs> um, one of my big regrets is looking at the photo of Gary, oh, uh, dead on the ground, Yeah, um, which was terrible. I never should have done that. Um and very hard not to be impacted by that. So, you know, I wish I'd, I'd never looked at that, which would have made things, would have made it easier to be impartial, a yeah. lot more impartial and, yeah. and not sort of get emotionally involved. Yeah. But, of course, when regardless of whether the police officer's a close friend or, 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 or a police officer didn't know, um, clearly the motivation to catch the people responsible is... is Overwhelming um, for the police. You, you want to make sure that that you that you lock up the bad guys and those guys responsible. So um, it, it was difficult, but it, you you try and be impartial. You try and be objective um, because ultimately you, you need to be. You have to be. You have to demonstrate that you are. So um, yeah, um, and and you know we we all. Uh, I, I, Rejoiced is not a not a uh, a word you'd probably use, but certainly we were all very happy. Oh, I mean, um, yep. the work done by the task force was amazing. Um, you know, led by Paul, um, you know, and the team, it was an amazing effort, and um, you know, uh, we're all very happy that it happened. And when you when you when you think, and you're in the job um, for Russell Street, when you think of the contrasting um, feeling when, you know, the Russell Street bombers got off, mm. were acquitted, yeah. um, it was a good feeling. Yeah. Wouldn't get much better, I wouldn't have thought. Hey, is, um, is there ever been a, a crook? Um, I think we call them persons of interest now. But is there ever been, we'll call them crooks because we always have, um, that you'd be brave enough to admit, I suppose, has really got under your skin or that you've been um, frightened for your life or something and why? Um, not really. Um, you know, the most, the most dangerous job, I think, in the police force is working the van. Work in the car, and I was lucky that that I spent the majority of my career in in you know squads or or um, or the SOG where I knew we we were better armed, better trained, um, you know, better calibre, uh, and and there was no real need to be scared of you know worried about any one individual, but I think. Um, you know, pulling people over on the side of the road in a car that you don't know who's in, that you're not particularly um, primed for to to you know cover the person for your gun and and I, and I, and I know you know this, but it's it's all action and reaction. If I've got my gun out when you walk up to the car, you, you're gone. It doesn't matter how well trained you are, 
how well armed you are, how well backed up you are. If the person wants to take you out, they will, um, if they've already got their gun out. So for me, you know, the most dangerous part of the job was is is still is working the van, um, working the car. When, you, when you're not expecting and you can get lulled into, you might be your 20th car that you pulled over that day. Just happens to have someone in there who's either, you know, motivated some way, shape or form that they want to take you on. Um, but most of the, you know, I think most of the, most of the professional, if I can call them, um, criminals from, from back in my day were, were still, it was a, I wouldn't say it was the sheepdog and the, and the wolf clocking on and clocking, clocking back on again, but uh, off. But, um, you know, it was sort of a, a grudging respect for the guys who, who um, you know, spent their time essentially doing what we were doing but on the other side of the fence. Yeah, you're right. Um, yeah. You know, and, and they tried as hard as they could to commit their crimes and get away, and we tried as hard as we could to stop them from meeting their, committing their crimes and to lock them up. So, um, no, I never really had any one individual that was a concern to me. Okay. Did you ever fear for your own life? Um, no, because I think if you if if you do if you're concerned about that, I mean, you should always have a healthy um, amount of fear, fear, trepidation for a situation. So you know that experience and that that um, you know that that gut feel kicks in. So I think you you always need that. But if you're starting to fear going into a house or committee or, or, or um, confronting someone, then it's probably time to choose a different career or a different different career, maybe administration, the policing or, or something else. So I think, um, you know, and, and your experience, not, nothing, nothing um, replaces experience. So, you know, if you haven't been... We used to say, what was the terminology, Norel? Uh, if you haven't seen an angry man, um, <laughs> you probably don't know what you're going to do until you do see one. That's right. Um, you know, you, you, you need to have that experience. You need to have gone through those experiences. You need to have made your mistakes and had your successes and reflected and contemplated about what you did right and what you did wrong. And then and then that, that will then you know, craft and formulate the way you think and your approach to um, situations where you think that there's a fair bit of danger involved. I mean, you know, we used to say Paul Carr used to be an inspector at the Special Operations Group. Um, he used to say, you know, we can't put you, we can't put these police people in a, in a box and fire um, live rounds at them. So how do we test, you know, their... their you know, their, their levels of commitment, their levels of courage. Um, for example, you know, if you're, you've got to commit a, an assault on a, on a plane that's been, you know, it's full of hostages, there's every chance, you know, if the, if the terrorists are in there or the, the, the bad guys are in there waiting for you, the first two or three are probably going to get shot. First two or three police that enter or military operators that enter the, the cockpit or the the uh, the aircraft, um, there's a chance they're going to get shot, but knowing that, they still go forward and do it. You know, there's always a fight at that sort of tactical level about who's in first. I want to be number one in. Now, whether that's bravado, ego, whatever it is, um, if you start second guessing, I don't want to be there. I don't want to be number one. The time to do that's before you go on the job and you're about to crack the door, not. Not uh, not when you're standing there as number one about to go through, you know. So um, yeah, and I think that's that's when we talk about that selection and talk about the critical incidents and managing emergency response. It's it's they're the sort of attributes you've got to identify and cultivate and train and and provide experience to those people so they deal with that. But a healthy amount of fear, um, I think, is all, you know. Mm. You left uh, the police force, oh, I don't know, how, how long ago would it be, 15 years? 2009, I can't believe it. Oh, okay. Feels like yesterday in <laughs> some respects, yeah. a long time ago. Yeah, but um, how did you come out of it uh, psychologically? 
Um, you know, I'm sure many people were in the same boat, many police officers, current and, and former, would be in the same boat as me. I had no idea that things were creeping up on me, you know, and I, I think I mentioned to you um, off air, I, I went to a – I was on the police executive of the union for five or six years and I went to a union conference in Perth and there was a, a speaker who was a – psychologist, uh, ex-Vietnam vet who came back from Vietnam and really struggled um, struggled with his experiences over there and couldn't find anyone to help him. So he, he actually trained and became qualified as a psychologist and specialising in, in post-traumatic stress disorder. And, you know, I, I had nothing to do. There was a, a bit of a break in the conference and that this was an optional extra, if you like. And I thought I'd go over and, and listen. And I sat in the audience and he went through, I, I'm, I'm going to say 10, but it might have been less or it might have been more, um, attributes of someone who has PTSD. And as he was going down the list, I looked and I ticked every one of them. Yeah. And, um, you know, and I looked back and, and um, you know, Patience, intolerance for um, intolerance for for behaviour that wasn't what I expected, and I'm talking about my kids, you know, and my personal life. Um, you know, shortness of of, of temper. Um, you know, it kind of grew. It, it, it snuck up on you, you know, and um, and you know, I think my kids and my partner um, suffered as a result of that. And I, you know, I remember coming back from Perth saying, you know what, and I don't think I was, I was seconded out of the SOG at the time and saying to my colleagues there, look, guys, we've, we've actually got to do something about this. We need to we need to sort of be proactive about this because there's no doubt we've got it. We, we'd had some issues in the past with guys who'd got out of the SOG after fatal shootings and, and all sorts of stuff. And, um, and you know... Uh, um, it, it took a long while um, to kind of realise it, firstly, and then and then understand it. I mean, individually, they probably didn't mean as much. I mean, you never, you know, I went to um, one that sticks in my mind. We, we turned up, it was a Monday morning. We got a call out to a domestic issue, possible shooting, and we went out to Endeavour Hills went out there, lights and bells, we pulled up, what had happened, and I may get this wrong, but I think um, there was a, a, a lady who turned up to collect her daughter from her estranged husband from the house, the family home. The daughter was about three or four, I think, and um, the husband had walked out with the daughter and uh, shot her. Uh, while she sat in the car outside the outside the address, and then went took the daughter back inside, and um, we arrived out there and didn't know that that the um, that the whether whether the mother was alive or dead. So you know we went forward in the armoured car and and got her out, and it was just you know it was it was horrific. Um, put her in the back of the the armoured car and took her around the corner and. And um, yeah, where the ambulance took her away, and 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 she was dead. Um, and you know, then there was concern about the little girl, and the obviously the father, and and so there was a siege set up, and and eventually he'd released him. Whether he released or we'd worked out that that she, the daughter, had left and and gone next door. So we we went forward in the armoured car again, um, and and got the daughter. And what struck me. We put her into the back of the car or back of the truck, the armoured truck, with her mum's blood everywhere. You know, it, it was terrible. And, and you know, we took her around, and 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 um, the uniform police took her off her hands, and we went back and you know tried to negotiate with the father, but um, he ended up committing suicide while he was inside, which was not unusual um, back in those days. And and that's one that does. You know, I do revisit and I, I look back on and think, you know, that really impacted me. That, um, you know, that uh, putting putting the daughter in the back of the car, the back of the truck. Hmm. So, you know, um, 
Yeah, yeah, that was. Yeah, okay. Well, she. It's. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you know, but um, mm. yeah, very difficult those ones. And and there was that. There was uh, there was a fatal shooting we're involved in where uh, unintentionally, you know, you you come across. you know, we had this guy who tried to shoot his, tried to kill his mum earlier that day, and then tried to shoot his partner. They were living together on a property outside of, just on the outskirts of Melbourne. Um, we turned up out there in the middle of the night. He'd been firing shots and so on and so forth, and and we went forward to try and negotiate with him. And one of our snipers was out in the field, and he, long story short, he confronted him, and we ended up in a fatal shooting, and he was shot and killed. Um, he was a, you know, had a long criminal history, bank robber and so on and so forth. Um, and I was living out east at the time and ended up, uh, I was a bomb technician at the time and and we, we were presenting to the CFA units about um, when they turned up at house fires, what to be aware of in case there was booby traps and they were growing, you know, people either had meth labs in there or, or, um, or marijuana um, crops in there, you know, and what to look for and what to do sort of thing. And unbeknownst to me, and I, I was doing that as a favour for the local CFA captain. It was a, it was a great bloke. And um, I, I didn't realise that, the you know, afterwards all these questions were coming out as they normally would, what sort of guns do you use and what sort of this and what sort of that and, and, um, and, and I caught up with the captain afterwards and I said, look, you know, I hope, hope that's all good and we'll go. He said, oh, look, I just want to introduce to this uh, to my um, my 2IC here and his name's, uh, I, I don't recall his name, and but he, uh, and, and when he said his name, I thought that's, that's interesting and, and, and uh, then I realised that he, he was the father of the guy that we'd shot. Oh, out there and um you know it was that one of those ones where you you know we (laughs) confronted like that what do you say i mean how do you no how do you uh reconcile what you've just said and who you are with yeah with you know you're standing there in the blacks and all that sort of stuff and how do you reconcile that with with a guy who's criminal or not he's lost his son and you were the one who took it took his son's life yeah you know um that can be that was pretty difficult too so there were a number of those along the way you know i went to car accidents one of the big things narelle is you know i went to a car accident involving a policeman who got hit by a a car when he was giving a ticket out Mm. on the hume highway is that Rennie page yeah it was yeah it was yep and I just the devastation of of the power of an automobile and what it does to a, a human body. Um, I was just, you know, I was blown away by that. I mean, I'd I'd seen a lot of, lot of deceased people, whether they be stabbed, shot, whatever, um, you know. But but I had no idea of of um, you know. I, I guess I'd never really thought about um, the 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 impact of a motor car on on a human body. And, you know, and from then on, I cause, you know, I, I was thinking about, my God, how did the guys in in AIS, I'm not sure what it's called now, major, major collision, whatever, who deal with that stuff, um, you know, all the time. I mean, I, I just wonder how they how they deal with that, you know, how, how do they recover? How do they, how do you have a normal life after that? You know, and I, and I'm sure the police have now a much better system, you know, to, to, to help you out. I know in the, in that fatal shooting, um, I just spoke of, you know, we had a phone call from welfare. Are you okay? Oh, I think we're okay. Yeah, I think we're fine. Mm. And that was it sort of thing. Yep. <laughs> and I'm sure Big Pole Welfare are much better than that these days. They but want to be watched. Back then. <laughs> yeah. And, and you know what? We, we were probably our own worst enemies, Narelle, because we, of course, you know, ego and all that sort of stuff. You say, yep. well, you know, well, yeah, of course we're fine. You know, why wouldn't we be fine? We're trying to do this stuff. Um, yep. And I, and I think we're seeing the results of the, the engagements overseas with the military and, 
um, the impact on on people coming back from those things um, pretty much these days uh, a lot. And and I'm sure there are people certainly of uh, my age and and younger who have seen plenty that they shouldn't have. Um, who still struggle silently to to manage their emotions and you know and and I'm not talking about it being a cop out because I've done something wrong and while wow, that's that's what I'm dealing with I mean just dealing with life you know when you've been through that sort of stuff uh, can be pretty confronting. Yeah, you wonder how some people put one foot in front of the other, don't you? When you see what. Um you know, grief people deal with and trauma. Um, yeah. Anyway, look, Walshy, I could I could listen to you all day, um, but thank you so much for sharing uh, so much with us today. Um, I just want to make sure you're okay. <laughs> no, no, I'm fine. It's pretty Girl. tough. It's pretty tough. Pretty tough stuff, isn't it? Um, look, we might just finish off. I just want a very, a very quick answer. Sure. How fast can you get to a job in an SOG van? Like, I think you can do one agent. <laughs> well, well, they, they used to be. Can you tell us? They, they used to be um, V8 Land Cruisers. I'm not sure whether they still are or not, but the, some of the guys who did the pursuit course had the V8 uh, sedans, the pursuit cars. But the fastest way to get there in the realm, and I remember we, we had to go and deal with them, uh, a lab out on the outskirts of Melbourne, the fastest way to get there is in Air 490. <laughs> and then you fast right out and, you, and, you, and you're on top of them within minutes. It's fantastic. <laughs> That's not bad, Walsh. <laughs> I think we might just leave it there. <laughs> so we fast rope. We get the chopper and we fast rope down. Is that right? Yep. And that can be, okay, I'll remember that. Like a very long fireman's pole, except it's a bit flexible. A bit? <laughs> Bloody hell. All right, right, Walsh, I think we'll leave it at that, but thank you so much for your time and thanks for um, keeping us all so safe over those years. Good luck, Noel. Bye now. Thanks, Walshie. Hey, it's Norell here again. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoy the podcasts as much as we enjoy putting them together. But to make sure you never miss an episode of Narelle Fraser Interviews, hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a rating and even a review. And please share it with all your friends too. And again, thanks for joining us. We have got some amazing stories to tell. So thanks again. See ya. A new year is full of surprises, but one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services. So when postage goes up, your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com is like your own personal post office, wherever you are. You can even take care of orders on the go with the mobile app. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Schedule package pickups, automatically find the cheapest and fastest shipping options, and seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. There's even a supply store where you can stock up on mailing supplies, labels, even printers. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. All you need is a computer or phone and printer. Take a chunk out of your mailing and shipping costs this year with Stamps.com. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com code PROGRAM.